being a BIPOC LGBTQ plus member, sometimes or most times it takes me a much longer time to open up to my therapist and talk about all of my trauma and it's probably it's most of the time it's because I'm scared to explain all of it. Welcome to our podcast series Resistance in Color. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students. We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity, and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hi everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of Resistance in Color. This week we have a very, very special guest personally. Her name is Shuvi Yadav and she uses she her pronouns. Um, she graduated from the U of M with a degree in finance and supply chain. What an amazing person. Um, she's also an international student from India and she identifies as a pansexual woman. I wanted to discuss put a disclaimer out i might be biased because she is one of my best friends um so yeah thank you so much shubi for coming on to this episode thank you for having me here thank you for such a good introduction sion and yeah i'm really excited to be part of this so this podcast series as you've heard is called resistance in color and one of the things i'm always curious is to hear what other people think what that sounds like so what would you define resistance in color? How does that look like? What does that sound like for you? So right off the bat, just when Sian told me about this for the first time, um, the way I see it is resisting against discrimination that people of color, specifically BIPOC people, face in America. And that could be in all different types of industries that we work in, whether we are volunteering on the front lines or we are working in corporations towards the back end, um, just, just, just basically resisting towards all sorts of discrimination um, that people of color face in this country. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different aspects and I'm hoping that you'll be able to go into and unpack as we, as we, as we go along. Yeah. Siren, do you want to take the next question? Yeah, for sure. I, Remember you specifically talked about how intersectionality is a really important part of um, activism or resisting within color. Can you tell us more about what intersectionality is for you? Of course. So right off the bat, I strongly believe that activism is incomplete if it isn't intersectional. Um, And very similar to the actual definition of intersectionality, intersectional activism to me is understanding how different identities of an individual um, contribute towards creating a system of privilege and a system of discrimination that that person will hold or go through in society. In my opinion, intersectional activism is fighting fighting for equality for all those intersectional identities together and not just certain identities in isolation. Mm. It's 
it is very essential, um, and it essentially is resisting discrimination in all forms. I hear you because it does sound a bit redundant if we're talking about activism and you're looking at it in one lens. You're like, hello, nobody exists as right. one, <laughs> one thing. Exactly. And I can immediately, I think about white feminism as an example mm. that goes very much against intersectionality because it's, like you said, it's so redundant. Like you cannot stand up for all women if your feminism is, you're looking at it through the lens of white feminists. The struggles are not the same yeah. that all feminists go through. Um, the way those struggles need to be addressed are not the same. Not the same. So it essentially, you're essentially creating just different systems of privileges within a marginalized identity. And I just feel like you're not getting anywhere with that. <laughs> then we don't make progress. I'm curious, actually. I guess we all have different paths when we become interested in in, in activism or in things around us and you're like wait that doesn't make sense what was what kind of was the genesis that was the moment where you were like this is this is this doesn't make sense this is what i'm interested in i and i think um, it, it goes really well with um one of our questions here is how has your identities impacted the way that you have thought about international uh, intersectional activism i'm sorry and the way that you resist discrimination in all forms. I guess that's like three questions in one. We could break it down. <laughs> of course. Oh, happy to answer. So being an immigrant, pansexual woman of color in America, I recognize that I hold a lot of identities that are marginalized. At the same time, being a cisgender, light-skinned woman who has had the privilege to access higher-level education I also hold a lot of privilege in the society. And I think just understanding how my marginalized identities and how my privilege allows me to push to educate myself, stand up for my identities, and also create safe spaces for other marginalized identities is what has motivated me more and more towards basically resisting to discrimination. When I was growing up, I grew up in India, where I, like, I think I hold a lot more privilege than I do in American society. Mm. Um, however, I was, I grew up in a society which was very homophobic. I grew up in a society where my entire existence was illegalized by the state for the first 18 years of my, my life. So there was always this, even when I was growing up, there was always this point where I was very adamant towards being like, no, this has to change. This makes no sense. Yes. This, why is this supposed to be this way? Women like me are not expected to go in higher level education. Women like me are not really expected to go abroad and leave their house and travel so far away to pursue further education. And it never really clicked to me why was it supposed to be that way. Yeah. Um, and once I came to America, I saw so much diversity here I would consider my hometown to be largely homogeneous. Most people look like me. Most people speak the, speak the same language as me. But when I came here, I saw that discrimination that I saw at home, but at a much larger scale. So mm. all the tiny problems that I didn't see growing up, I saw them now. And I realized, it's, oh, it's a much bigger problem than I expected it to be. Yeah. And I realized I became more aware of my privilege. And I realized that, oh, my voice actually has a lot more power than I ever thought it to be. And if I don't use it in the right direction, then it's all just waste. Mm. The listeners, you can't see this, but Cyan is like busy snapping. <laughs> 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 yes, you go, girl. 
I want to cry because it's such a well put um, statement and I wholeheartedly agree. I kind of want to touch on what you talked about in a way that you're kind of talking about like activism or resistance can be in various forms, whether that you're on the front line or in your like in daily life working. I just want to ask like, how has it been like as an international student? who doesn't have the same rights as a U.S. citizen. Like, we can't vote, for example, or call our representatives because they're not our representatives. Mm -hmm. So how do you think um, you or your fellow other international students has been resisting, or how can they be empowered more to resist in those various forms that you think are also forms of activism? Of course. And thank you so much for asking that question, because that does allow me to go back to this battle that I think international students, we constantly go through, where we feel this lack of security, lack of our security of our place in U.S. due to the nature of the way immigration laws are structured in this country. We understand very deeply what it feels like to never fully belong somewhere. We understand what it feels like to feel unwelcome. And especially international students, I've noticed in my experience, international students who also identify as BIPOC and are members of LGBTQ plus community, we are especially more vocal about those battles because we also understand how our marginalized identities and the intersectionality between those identities operate in spaces. Now, like you mentioned, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of rights to speak up. We don't have a ton of rights to very actively voice ourselves. Mm -hmm. One thing that I noticed personally during the last summer throughout the entire Black Lives Movement was I was very much terrified to go and participate in a lot of protests. Because if I get arrested, anything could happen. I could be deported. They could cancel my student visa. I could lose the opportunities to have work visa in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's a very weird situation to live in when you actively want to voice yourself that whole situation motivated me to go and look for other sorts of other basically other channels of activism yes um and i genuinely believe that we can support and resist discrimination i made a point to spread awareness about the entire black lives life black lives matter moment from my home by holding dialogue i realized the power of having conversations with your friends and family because a lot of people that I was talking to did not understand the depth of the problem. They did Mm -hmm. not understand all different aspects of the problem. A lot of people that I was holding conversations to were able to make me understand certain aspects of the problem better. And I think that flow of information is very important. Uh, From a more active standpoint, I think we international students, we can donate. We still can donate sitting from our home. We can donate to different charities. We can donate to different fundraisers. We can contribute to a lot of people were just doing... um, supply runs toward, uh, in the positions where the uh, protests were taking place, we can donate to those. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can constantly keep contributing to those. We can still email and call our state district representatives, even though we can't vote in elections. We can still call. We can still email them. And being college students, we hold a lot of power towards the Board of Regents in our colleges. So mm-hmm. we can voice our concerns. We can make sure that we call them. And we... We call them and send them emails and tell them about these problems and being members of um, uh, the BIPOC community, being members of LGBTQ plus community, this is very personal to us. And yeah. if we are paying so much tuition as international students, 
we pay huge amounts of money to the university yeah and just telling the university that hey all that amount of money is at risk if you don't make a change yeah i think that that is a lot of power so yeah i'm agreeing with you in many ways and i think it's so weird when i guess being able to being an international student and then looking at immigration laws and you're thinking but we also you know it feels um you said something uh about that we know what it feels like to be to not belong and you know to be mm-hmm. to be othered i mean the right. the state literally calls us non-resident aliens so aliens that is oh my God. one way to feel othered i had a question on something that um you shared in your bio with us here that you have and and something that you've also shared about other channels that we can take part in resistance um and by we here it's international students or people who might not be documented or have um rights to do legislative actions um and one of the things that you said was engaging in dialogues and you i would like you to tell us share a little bit expand a bit on that and on um specifically something that you shared that you conducted research on gender and sexuality in the corporate sector could you um elaborate and tell us a little bit more about that absolutely i would love to talk about that so last summer um i'm a, i was a part of carlson funds the price which is a enterprise system in carlson school of management um where we um we oversee a bunch of investment in large corporation and as a part of that enterprise during summer we oversee a lot of different researches in different aspects of corporate sector mm-hmm. um one which i really was interested in and i later became a part of it was gender and repercussions of earning on gender so essentially what we were trying to look at was women ceos and men ceos and how do investors react to women ceos not hitting an earnings mark and men ceos not hitting an earnings mark wow so it has been observed largely that when women ceos not hit an earnings mark yeah. at the end of the quarter they are punished more hard more harshly by the investors compared to men ceos wow um and it's it's the same thing if men will miss their men ceos will miss their earnings women ceos it's, it's essentially the companies missing the earnings however yes. women ceos companies led by men ceos see a much larger drop in their stock price really? compared to companies that have men ceos yeah and i'm just thinking so they're already are, sorry 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 to get you but i'm already thinking i'm just so thinking there are already such yeah, few women see or run organizations right. anyway sorry go ahead right so it's almost it's almost like companies are punishing um well, women ceos for uh missing earning marks more harshly than companies are punishing men ceos <laughs> so um you know what i will look at the because research is still ongoing and we had collected a lot of data so we collected the data for russell 3000 companies so it's an aggregate data of 3000 companies over the span of 20 years Wow. for all four quarters during the year so it's a bunch of data that we collected and the research is still ongoing so we don't we don't have the results for it yet because we're trying to statistically prove or disprove this mm. um but that's the aggregate of it and i thought it was such an interesting research my um my head for the funds enterprise program susanna given she's a wonderful woman and she she has been the one working on this research for like couple of years um but it was really interesting to see that and it was really interesting to hold dialogue in that yeah. like you mentioned like just seeing that oh my god like 
if you look over the past 20 years, the number of women CEOs has increased, but okay. it's nowhere close to being equal. It's, it's still so less. They would mm. celebrate successes of being like, wow, like 11% of women are CEO. 11% of companies have women CEOs. This uh-huh. is not really a big number. And it gets worse when you look at, oh, how many of these women identify as yes. BIPOC? So I I really like talking about that research to actually tell people that, hey, like corporate sector has a long way to go Mm. to putting women in power, putting women, especially in higher positions, because I think over the past few years, corporate sector has started hiring more and more women, especially women of color. Mm -hmm. But we, we still aren't a part of the executive board. We still aren't a part of the so-called CEOs and unless we are part of that higher up yeah. uh, executive level of board, we really aren't in as much power to make actual concrete decisions which will promote more equitable hiring practices. Yeah. Oh, wow. Look at that wokeness. <laughs> Look at that wokeness. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I guess kind of going off of that, I know that you are planning to pursue a master's in finance. Woohoo, amazing, because she's so smart, everybody. How do you think you or people like me who aren't like a professional social activist or healers or in any sorts of ways can contribute to the form of resistance? Um, or how, like, what is your plan going forward within your career? How do you plan to consistently? make that part of your journey, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Of course. I would I would like to point out something one of my friends said a while ago, and oh, Sion is also friends with her. Um, she said, people like me and Sion, people like us just existing in corporate sector and spaces that have been predominantly very white male oriented mm-hmm. is a form of existence, is a form of activism itself. Um, like I mentioned earlier, like there are not a lot of women, definitely not a lot of BIPOC women who are also members of LGBTQ plus community in corporate sector. So being there and being a part of those corporate sector, being at the table, being able to make decisions or contribute in any sort of way is a form of activism. It also means that people like me and Sion have this great form of privilege where we can push for creation of safe spaces in the companies that we work from, we can essentially push for change from the inside. And again, it's no news to us that American corporate sector is one of those places that desperately needs that change, that desperately needs to be more inclusive, needs to be more diverse. Mm. So just, I think, I think that itself is a privilege where we can exist in those spaces, make our voices heard and make sure that we are creating safe spaces for other marginalized entities who probably aren't even in those spaces yet. Make sure that hiring practices are at least pushed a little bit in more equitable direction where you're like, oh, you know what? We want more people at the table. Mm -hmm. We want more BIPOC members at the table. Uh, We want more trans lives at the table. And we want to make sure that once they are at the table, their voices are heard. Yeah. And I think maybe for somebody who's listening and, and is like, why do we want those voices for somebody who's listening who might be living under a rock or might not be able to like relate um, uh, to uh, some of what we've been talking about? It's 
they might say, and I don't want to play devil's advocate here, but they might say, why is it important to have these different identities on the table? Because I, I think sometimes people forget that these identities are people. Like, these people have minds. Yeah. It's not like you're just hiring somebody with this identity. It's not like, right. you know, yeah. but how would you answer that question? Why is it important for these people to have a seat uh, on the table? Of course, like you just said, these people are not just getting hired because of their identities. Mm-hmm. I think there is talent everywhere. And there are talented BIPOC people. There are talented trans people who deserve to be hired. I'm just saying that they should not be passed over an opportunity just because they are a certain identity. Right. So we are essentially asking for the bare minimum from these <laughs> companies. And also, you know, if you want to look at it from a more research point of view, there are researches that have shown yeah. that companies who have more diversity on their board, companies who have more diversity in their workplace, actually perform better than companies that are very largely white and male dominant. Mm. So it also gives the companies a a sort of push, a sort of incentive to hire more people, to hire talent from all over the place. And I can absolutely see why. So I and Sion and you, you, we all hold such different experiences. We all have gone through such different experiences that are very different from somebody who has grown up in Minneapolis, Twin Cities area, identifies as a straight white male. Yes. And I think uh, those difference of opinions, those difference of experiences Mm -hmm. is what enriches a company. We all are able to bring different skills and talents to the table. Right. And I think a lot of like bigger companies have started to realize that, that that different set of skills, that different communication skills that we all hold is beneficial to them at the end of the day about time they realized that (laughs) (laughs) i also want to add that if anyone who's interacting with a community that is not that has any type of diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. your company or your organization should represent that as well right like it does not absolutely make sense for a bunch of straight white men to go into like different parts of the world that don't have those people as a majority of their population and try to talk to them or communicate with them and understand them because they can't because they don't hold their identities yeah that is so beautifully put like of course at least your the company should reflect the population demographics that's all i'm saying yeah 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 and i think you say corporate but i think actually even in the in the non-profit sector too some of these Mm -hmm. things play out as as well i work in a non-profit and i think you you see that as well and i wonder (laughs) i wonder now because um uh, our director is female. I wonder if that changes how, um, like, with with according to your research, I would be curious to find out what that looks like. Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier, um, and we live the capitalism for a li- hanging on pause for a little bit. It's too much in our lives, um, and so focusing on the different ways that you identify. Um, and how those become relevant in different contexts. Um, we have, and for anyone listening, this podcast is a product of uh, a Multicultural Young Adults Advisory Board um, with NAMI Minnesota. And one of the things that this board and, and I guess hopes to do is 
have conversations around mental health that are um in many ways um in line with what you're talking about intersectionality looking at mental health through different cultural lenses because mental health and experiences about mental health and identities are not the same um of, with different cultural groups so looking at that and thinking about experiences with your identities and with how you feel those different identities impact you or your you and or your community's mental health of course that is i'm so glad you asked that question because that is also such an important topic and like you said it's so different the way mental health is treated yeah. where i grew up i don't think i'd ever heard about therapy and it was always seen as a taboo like you don't go to therapy unless there is something really wrong with you and if you go to therapy you'll be shunned away from the society the amount of taboo that surrounds mental health and at the end of the day it just it does nobody good it mm-hmm. only harms the society and it takes away a lot of good talent yeah. um and when we i think Sion would relate to this and you would relate to this too when we moved to america yes we see this very different approach to mental health here first of all the resources are definitely much more accessible than they were in my home country at least mm-hmm. um people are much more willing to hold conversations talk about it it's i would say it's much more just normalized um which first of all i found it very validating mm-hmm. i see the out mental i see that mental health resources i see that professional help when i got here and it has definitely helped me so much over the past years um so another thing kind of like the other side of this that i've noticed is a lot of time um americans don't recognize that there are such stark differences mm-hmm. in the way mental health is approached in this country and at least in my country in some other parts of the world that they are not as kind towards those changes um i have noticed that sometimes people will shun me or just call me out not even call me out just kind of make me feel bad for not approaching or not seeking help for mental health resources and i think it takes me a little bit of time to explain them that oh it's it's because i'm not used to it yeah it's because everything i've learned about this is from age 18 and forward and i'm only 22 years old um people would be like you need to be more vocal about this you need to be talk more about this and it takes me a little bit time to explain them that hey in order for me to do that mm-hmm. i need to overcome this internalized battle that i have mm-hmm. all that 18 years of phobia that internalized phobia that i have i have to overcome that and talk about it much more so i think as international students we can definitely use more safe spaces because i definitely feel much more comfortable talking about this to other international students because i understand that they will understand um and that also leads me that also pushes me further to go out and seek help for myself go out and get more resources that are more directed towards international students because i know that we require different kinds of um mental health resources yeah. compared to americans yeah um there's also i think there's also cultural trauma so the kind of trauma that i have gone through when i was growing up is very different from the kind of trauma a lot of people in america have gone through when they were growing up and because of just because of the difference of those just because of the difference in cultures um the way cultures approach mental health i feel like 
there is not one resource that's going to help both of these groups. Yeah. I think we need different types of resources, different type of mental health that is more aimed towards BIPOC um, communities, that is more aimed towards immigrant communities. Yes. So, yeah. Mm. Could you, I don't know if, you, if you're, you're comfortable sharing a little bit of what you said, the trauma um, that looks different in different places. Would you be comfortable sharing, sharing a little bit about what trauma looked like or that trauma might look like uh, from your community? Um, I'll, I'll try to share as much as I feel comfortable, but there, were, there are a lot of, at least in my what I've noticed, there are a lot of family problems that I've noticed mm. that me and my other brown friends go through, which at least I haven't heard being talked a lot about in American society. Mm-hmm. And it's probably because those problems are very Indian society related problems. The way marriages are structured, the way grandparents will live in the same house mm-hmm. as your family, the way the power distance, I feel like I can talk about the power distance, the power distance between the elders, your parents, and then you. And how that power distance is based on a lot of silencing. I think that's what it is. Like, Mm. you can talk about this, respect elders, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, don't. And over the first 18 years of my life, I think I've like learned to equate respect to to silence. And now I'm I'm realizing that, hey, that's not how it is supposed to be. I can respect you and still speak up against you. Yes. Um, so I think that is such a unique trauma for me, at least, because it's so, it's so as a result of my culture. It's mm. so as a result of where I grew up and what I was taught as like good family values. Mm. That unlearning it takes a different kind of professional help, which I think a lot of um members of BIPOC community, especially uh, members who identify as immigrants would be able to relate to. I wholeheartedly agree. Like, as also another Asian person, I think, like, the power dynamics and the patriarchal, just cultural norms that are put in place and are so strongly, deeply engraved into all parts of our communities, it's really hard for us to talk to practitioners who are white or who don't know anything about our culture because they simply don't haven't experienced that themselves. Like, although they can be very empathetic, I don't think it's the same when you're talking to another BIPOC person. Mm. So going back to the point, Shubi's point of we need more practitioners that are geared towards BIPOC or other marginalized identities, I think is really, really important. And thank you so much for bringing that up. Thank you, Sion. You you summarized it perfectly. I was going all over the places. Thank you so much for doing that. All over the place is good. We like to hear what, what you're thinking in different <laughs> kind of ways. Um, okay. So, Shubi, I wanted to go back to something you had said earlier, just about as we're as we were again talking about intersectionality in mental health um, and how we kind of learn and unlearn different things about mental health. Um and we've had a conversation on the pre- podcast previously where someone talked about the role their family had in their mental health journey. Um, and it was interesting having a conversation after that and, and realizing that some sometimes family is part of the process and sometimes it can feel like you have to come out of 
family to be in the process. So you said something that I really liked that was unlearning good family values. And I say this in quotes, good family values that kind of make you feel aloof in this, in this, in, and not talk about it and be hush hush. You know, people will say, we don't talk about this, that thing, those things right. here. You know, when, you talk, when you're going to therapy, it's like you're, you're taking the family's business to somebody else. And that's like, no, right. we don't do that. Um, so I, I think it's 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 really interesting hearing that from you as well. And do you feel like in in the experiences, I guess, have you seen that difference as well in your experiences? How sometimes, I don't know, has how, how do you feel like your community, your kind of, um, your family, the people that you've set up around you to be even your own community, not just your the community that you identify with, have been part of the process or is it something that you felt you had to step out from to get um, kind of understanding? So when you say, just to clarify the question, when you say community, is this my family mm-hmm. or also like my friends and everybody else? Can be both. It can be both. And I think, but I think maybe we should go with family because that's the first one that people kind of think about. Right. Of course. From a family point of view, I think moving away from home mm-hmm. has been one of the best things that has happened to my mental health. Whoa. It has been. And I love my family. I love them so much. Yes. Even now I have a really good relationship with them. But frankly, I'm like happier when I'm away. And I think it's, <laughs> I think it's because it's the distance, the space between me and my family right yes. now has allowed me to be who I am, to mm. be my true version, mm-hmm. to live up all my identities mm. and form my own thoughts and my opinions and my values mm-hmm. towards everything else in life. And I think, like I said, like when you're growing up, because respecting elders and that social distance yes. and making sure that your family's reputation is good, yes. and you're, you're really all of your decisions really aren't just for yourself. Yes. You have to keep in mind so many different things. And I think I like the fact that I can make decisions for myself Mm. for what is good for me Mm -hmm. without worrying about 10,000 different things. Yeah. I have also kind of like adopted that as a thumb rule. Like it's, it's really difficult to unlearn those good family values but i've realized that if those good family values come at the cost of my mental health yes come at the cost of my peace and essentially just me standing up for myself then they really aren't that good family values yeah 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 they're just like control factors put in place to uh, control me control people my identity yeah um i would however say that my mom and i we have been very close and my mom has gone through a lot of her personal struggles in life mm-hmm. and she she, out of all my family members, she and my younger brother, they have been kind of like a part of processing. Right. I am able to hold conversations with them mm. about how certain things when I was growing up were very traumatizing for me. Mm. And certain things were absolutely wrong. They should not have been placed mm-hmm. like that. So they have also contributed to me and my part, like my processing process. Right. One of the other things that you also kind of brought up and I think is also important for listeners as they're thinking about well people who might be trying to understand how 
um, mental health experiences or experiences with identities or experiences being an international student look different with different cultures and how as you're talking about intersectionality it's it's something that you're living because it's an experience that you're having because you have all these layers and all these facets of yourself but for people who not but and for people who are trying to understand how that kind of can impact or define what mental health looks like can define how um a health being having wellness looks like how that can impact your journey of mental health could you speak a little bit um to what that could look like so how intersectionality can affect your mental health and how both of those fit together and affect each other yes okay of course um i think like sion sion brought up a point which really resonates with this so a lot of therapists that i've had are straight white people okay and being if being a bipoc lgbtq plus member sometimes or most times it takes me a much longer time to open up to my therapist mm. and talk about all of my trauma mm. and it's probably it's most of the time it's because i'm scared to explain all of it first of all talking about trauma we need to recognize is never easy yes it's it's almost like you're living up you're living all these experiences again so you don't want to talk about it in the first place to begin with yes. and then talking about it with somebody who you think would not recognize it mm-hmm. is another another battle we need to recognize that when i talk about mental health problems when i talk about my fight with mental health when a lot of members from lgbtq plus community and bipoc community talk about their mental health yes. a lot of their trauma is very much related to their identities mm. so talking about our trauma also involves talking about our identities yes, yes. and we will feel much more co- talking about much more comfortable talking about our identities when it's somebody else who also shares some of those identities <laughs> or has an experience with marginalized identities yes 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 so i think that is why like talking about mental health you cannot you absolutely cannot talk about mental health in isolation you yes. have to bring in your racial identities your gender identities your mm. sexual orientation identities your immigration status all of those need to be brought in because all of those are also contributing mm-hmm. to my mental health yes. i can't talk about those things in a separate manner um so yeah i personally i feel like for me um a lot of trauma that i had was religious trauma from the fact that i am pansexual mm-hmm. and a lot of religions around the world do not look at any other sexuality apart from heterosexuality yes. from validating standpoint mm-hmm. it's always from a negative standpoint so a lot of religious trauma like you said yeah mm-hmm. and then just moving to america as a person of color was a very interesting struggle like because you go through a lot of culture shock because you're moving country but you also move from a environment where you have never thought about your color to an environment where that's all you think about constantly <laughs> yes yes frustrating it's really is it's, it's so frustrating <laughs> right i i'm sure you can absolutely relate to it i never was conscious about it growing up and now it's such an important part of my identity i have to think about it all the time yeah yeah sometimes i, I don't know if this happens to you sometimes i feel like i forget 
I forget that this is that people see me and the first thing that they see yeah. is a black woman. Sometimes I forget until they oh say something God, and yeah. I'm like, why would you say, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> that <laughs> aha moment. Uh. <laughs> aha moment. Aha moments like in the airports when they stop you and they're like, we want to search up. And you're like, but. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that experience is like that. The experience that you go through at the airport, that is going to affect your mental health. Yes. So. It's like at every point in life, like every single space and time, every single point in life, it's, they both are just inseparable. I really don't see how people can talk about mental health in isolation. Correct, correct. <laughs> Anything in isolation. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm loving this conversation because it's been about the workplace, outside of the workplace, in school, in institutions, in, in mental right. health, because everything is so, we've, we're made up of different parts and there's so many layers of things. Right. You can't see this, listeners, but both Shubi and I are just kind of playing with our hands to show the different layers. <laughs> They're different layers. <laughs> um, all right. So as we wind down this con- wind down this conversation, because we have kind of expanded and talk about different little things. Um, A lot of things. <laughs> as you have been discovering more about intersectionality and intersectional activism. And, and I guess looking at the history, especially here in the U.S. where we currently are, it looks like there have been people constantly fighting. Like there have been women fighting for women's rights. There have been um, transgender people fighting for transgender people, right? There have been mm-hmm. Asian people fighting for it. It feels like people have constantly been fighting to be seen. You know, Black Lives Matter, different kinds of identities and and it feels it can if you tell um a community of uh of bipoc folks to continue resisting it feels like again you know still it feels like it can be really you're pounding on something that has been going how do you encourage yourself and maybe you can use this to to think about how you can encourage our listeners who might be part of this different dynamics different identities um that have still from in history have been fighting to be seen as valid and and to be heard and are still fighting and are still resisting how do you encourage them and encourage yourself to continue resisting i want to first of all acknowledge something you brought up that it can feel like oh still and i think a lot of my black friends will talk about this but they'll be like this seems like this is just going on and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And just listening to them talk about it also serves as motivation because I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, oh my God, imagine how tired they are. Mm. This is the truth and the life they have to live every single day. So most of the time I'm like, oh, I'm tired. And this really seems like there is no end to it. And then I, if you Google it, if you Google it, you'll see it. If you Google it, you will see yeah. that all these moments are not all for weight. Mm. There are positive changes that do come out of them. Even if they are small, they are not insignificant. There are changes and we are working in the positive direction. That motivates me. And then also the fact that this is a much, I think being able to say that, you know what, I'm tired mm. is a privilege. I genuinely think oh. being able to take a step back from, step back from it 
and then take a time out for your mental health and not to say that nobody should do this yeah um people should take care of their mental health whenever yes. needed so but i do think that is a privilege because for a lot of people they can't do that yeah. they you know you have to fight for your rights because it depend it's, it's a life or death decision exactly and that is another thing that motivates me a lot it it just like makes me cognizant of the privilege that i hold mm. that i'm like oh you know what i can take a few breather days and then come back to this again mm. and that motivates me to keep coming back to it to not give up yeah because there are certain people there are so many people with so many identities who can't afford to give up yeah and i think it's just harsh if they have to go through this fight all by themselves mm-hmm. because like i said i have the privilege and they don't have and i just that's just unfair if we we can go into that conversation for another hour <laughs> but that is just absolutely unfair so yeah those are those are two things that have kept me motivated to keep coming back to these conversations keep talking about them keep being a part of these moments mm. um because i do genuinely believe that they do work in positive direction yeah. um and they will they do create change and those changes are small but it's better than just not doing anything it's, we are we are positively impacting lives even if really at really small changes and really few amount of lives if that makes sense oh wow thank you should be for sharing that um <laughs> and as you're saying that even i think even for listeners who might be feeling I think it it is important for people to know sometimes rest can feel like a privilege but it is so important for our self care. It is so important. And yes. that in itself taking care of yourself is resistance. In itself it it is an act of resistance and oh, so Absolutely. Yeah. That is definitely a good point. I think I was telling Sion about this a lot. Um and because she she shared with me feelings of feeling tired and yeah. exhausted and she's like I don't want to stop I want to keep doing this. Yes. And I told her that you know if you rest up if you take time for yourself yes you are in a better mental and physical state for sure to fight for a better for change. For sure for sure. So definitely prioritize yourself and like you said that is activism taking care of yourself. Yes. Is definitely it. It's definitely it. What is one thing you would want the listeners to take away from this episode? Um I think this is for the listeners and also a really good advice that I keep giving myself. Um you are never fully educated about this. There is always more to learn, there is always more to do, there are always different channels mm. that require attention and active contribution. Um so just keep looking for places, keep trying to educate yourself. I love sitting in dialogues and just listening, just being an active listener. and that has educated me more than any other thing ever has just learning from people's experiences just listening and understanding and empathizing so yeah keep looking for places keep learning keep listening keep educating yourself do not put it upon others to educate you mm-hmm. other people and their trauma should not be a reason why you're educating and empathizing so take it upon yourself to educate yourself yeah um and yeah That's, that's my advice that's my takeaway well shumi thank you for being uh being here and lending your voice to our conversation we really appreciate you being here and just sharing all your insight we truly truly appreciate it thank you so much this was really amazing and i really enjoyed being a part of this conversation and i appreciate you giving me this opportunity i really do
Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to our conversation with Shubi. And again, Shubi, thank you so much for giving us your time, your expertise, your personal insights and experiences. It is so, so important for not only us, but everyone to hear your experiences because we need more voices from marginalized identities. And it takes a lot of courage to even speak up and share, even if you're given that platform. So thank you so much again. And we'll see you at the next episode. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. All music loops used in this episode came from the song titled The Way, produced by Mike Lighty and made available through a Creative Commons license. Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music, including the full version of the song, The Way, please see the podcast show notes for this episode.